Welcome to CinemaScope, a new podcast from True Story FM. Hi, I'm Andy Nelson, co-host of the Next Real Film podcast and Movies We Like. As a passionate movie lover, I've always relished exploring the diverse landscape of cinema. And when you look closer at the taxonomy of genres, subgenres, and film movements, you see an intricate web of interconnections and influences. This complex cinematic family tree spans only 125 years. So how did styles as diverse as the French New Wave, New Queer Cinema, and Ozploitation emerge? What cultural, economic, and technological forces sculpted these styles? And what hidden threads unite them all as part of the same fantastic art form? Those questions sent me on a journey to explore each style and trace their impacts, all to better understand the bridges between different styles. And that led me here to CinemaScope. In each episode, I'll be exploring one particular genre, subgenre, or film movement in depth, inviting expert guests to help us all better understand what defines that style, how it came to be, and what branches it, in turn, influenced on this big cinematic family tree. For example, how did German Expressionism shape American film noir? What's the difference between Westerns, Spaghetti Westerns, and Brazilian Nordesterns? We'll examine the economic and socio-political forces that birthed categories like black exploitation, and we'll spotlight visionary films and directors key to the evolution of different styles. So join me as we explore the complex forces that shape film's evolution and appreciate the diverse creativity possible in its relatively brief history. Let Cinemascope be your guide to understanding this art form we cherish how its genres blend, bounce off each other, and advance a rich tapestry of storytelling innovation. Together, we'll gain a deeper appreciation for this wondrous, shape-shifting medium. Our journey begins soon. Be part of this adventure by subscribing to CinemaScope today. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to the next reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. To Loder to Foter is over. One does not simply walk into Mordor. Legend tells of a ring created by an ancient evil that gave its wearer the power to enslave the world. Believed lost for centuries. It has now been found. Is it secret? Is it safe? This is the One Ring, forged by the Dark Lord Sauron. Sauron needs only this ring to cover all the lands of a second darkness. He's seeking it, seeking it all. His thought is bent on it. No one knows it's here, do they? Do they, Gandalf? The weapon of the enemy is a gift. Let us use it against him. You cannot wield it. None of us can. The ring must be destroyed. It was made in the fires of Mount Doom. Only there can it be unmade. I know what I must do. I'm afraid to do it. 
One does not simply walk into Mordor. There is no other way. There's something down there. line that started a thousand memes andy i was gonna say like that that has become such a meme (laughs) and it's it's like it's not just that and seeing sean bean as he says that as the meme but it's just like just saying one does not simply yeah blank into blank like it's become such a thing that it's just like what a strange thing to have like become a meme I guess that's why memes work, because it's like, that's well, why that was strange, work. but yeah. The, the thing about that one in particular is, like, it, it just took one person, just that one person, to to hear him say that and think, one does not simply other stuff. And <laughs> that that is just a real gift, to be able to hunt that and realize that Sean Bean saying that thing applies to everything in the world ever. <laughs> it's so, it's brilliant. So, uh, that is the big meme. We are doing the Lord of the Rings. That's what we're embarking on. That's our big series uh, right now. So we're going to do all three of the movies. And we should say we're we're looking at the extended editions of the three films. I, I really struggled with that this time because, uh, you know, since the extended editions entered my library, I, I've watched the movie a couple of times, like a couple, several times with different combinations of folks over the years since they came out. And uh, I no longer remember the theatrical versions of these movies. And so there are things in there I'm trying to place. Like, did I, was this in? I mean, it's four hours long almost, but, um, but I still, I can't quite place what would, what they possibly would have cut for the theatrical version anymore. That's, that's gone from my head. So I hope you remember all, everything. Well, I mean, do you want to start there? Like, yeah. Why don't we? Why don't we start there? That seems like a good way to begin. So to your point, first off, the the length of the movie has now um, expanded with this to 238 minutes, almost four hours, as you said. And now what's funny about that is it feels like the last half hour is just credits. Like of all the things that they've added in the the extended editions, one of the things that really adds to that time is that they added like this at the very end of the credits, this um, Lord of the Rings fan club. Like you could like go to this website, you could get onto this list. And I can't remember exactly the thing. I feel like I tried doing it. I can't remember if I did or if I ended up in any of these credits or not. But you could get yourself listed in it because you were a fan of the movie. Howard Shore had to, like, you know, kind of redo his end credit uh, score to allow for an extra just, I mean, it's purely just 10 plus minutes of just credits of people in this fan club. Like, it's crazy how much that is. We'll just start there because that's definitely something in all three of these that they've added. And, you know, just also as a note, the extended editions of these did play theatrically before return of the king was released they played in the few weeks leading up to return of the king's release they played 
the extended edition of Fellowship uh, for a weekend, and then the second weekend they did the extended ed- uh, edition of Two Towers, and then The Return of the King came out that following week. And I don't know if that's been released, Return of the King's extended edition into theaters, until like it's coming out. Like By the time this is out, it probably is already playing, because that was... Uh, one of those things that, um, uh, you know, a lot, it's their, I think it's an anniversary. Some anniversary, the, yeah. You know, 20 anniversary. Uh, yeah, so it's it's cool to see these things in theaters when you can. So as far as the extended editions, though, I, I don't think that we want to necessarily go through all of them because there are so, so many. Yeah. But they've added a few new scenes and then they've extended scenes as well. So at the very beginning, the whole concerning Hobbits bit, uh, where you have Bilbo as he's writing his memoirs, this whole thing is much more extensive. You're getting a lot more of kind of what the Hobbits are up to there. Mm-hmm. Um, you get a little bit more of the Green Dragon. You get when uh, Frodo and Sam are walking through the forest. Um, they're They're kind of like, I think Frodo or they're cooking or something and Frodo hears the elves and they go and see the elves are, are heading to, uh, to the West. And so, uh, after they've left the prancing pony with Strider, there's a scene where they're staying in these marshes and like, they're all the mosquitoes are attacking them and, and Strider brings them in the middle of the night. Uh, he brings a deer and uh, like some food for them. So that's, those are kind of some of the new scenes there. Mm-hmm. There's a lot more stuff at the whole opening as far as like scenes that have been extended as far as additional stuff at the birthday party and, and like all of that sort of thing. Additional stuff in the, uh, when you have the scene with Aragorn and um, Boromir talking about the um, the sword, the Isildur's right. sword that had been broken. Um, and so a lot of those sorts of things have been um, extended. And then you also have a scene when you have Aragorn going to this uh, memorial stone for his mother, Gilrain, and Elrond comes up to him to talk about the two of them and uh, the whole thing with how he, you know, he's the king and they can they can reforge the sword, but he's the only one who can wield it, blah, 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 that whole scene. Yes. Which I thought was, I think that's great. Like, so far, all of the culture stuff uh, and all, and the history stuff that's added in here is, I think, additive to the movie. Like, there's nothing in here that I feel like, oh, I mean, I understand you cut for time on a movie like this, but I do think the extended edition is is better, especially leading up to the foreshadowing of the sword, Isildur's sword, being reforged. Yeah, no, absolutely. It, it, like, those sorts of things uh, definitely help. And I think there's also more uh, like when the fellowship is departing Rivendell and stuff. So um, and and again, lots of extended stuff going all the way through like Balin's tomb and the mirror of Galadriel and uh, just all the way. I mean, the whole thing, there's there's so much that has been added all through and some of it's very short. Some of it's, uh, you know, much longer. But yeah, it's interesting that. You you do get to this place where you start watching the extended version so long that you start losing track of what had been added, because again, some of it is just so short, or some of it it just all kind of feels so a part of the movie that you you wonder why it was cut. And I think a lot of it is just you know a whole theatrical thing about like, well, can we really have this a movie running this long? You know, and that's the whole thing. Yeah, I think so. So 
I mean, is there anything that you feel as your, I mean, it sounds like you probably aren't remembering specifics too much, but were there any of those that as I was rattling, you're like, well, I guess I don't know if I really needed that one. No, I I feel like the the stuff that I that I love and and didn't remember as being excised from the theatrical cut concerning hobbits the entire bit at the beginning that was added around hobbits I think is is fantastic. There's a whole bit on the the passing of the elves and and I love that cultural like tie into to uh, elves moving on and on on the boat like i think that's that's really great uh, so it, it's honestly it's like the slower moments in the movie that i think improve pacing of the film right all this stuff that i like so much it's not the big fighty fighty slashy slashy fake things throwing at fake things it's it's the slower conversational moments it's the conversation at gilrain's memorial it's the um it, it's it's those pieces that i think are are um, are really nice. Um, what is your memory? I should have gone back and just watched the end of the theatrical cut, uh, especially around Boromir. What, how does the, how does Boromir's departure, uh, his entire fight at the end, how does that differ from the theatrical cut? Do you have a clear memory of that? I mean, first off, it's just worth noting that in the book, like they, they kind of took the opening of Two Towers, which is the attack of the orcs uh, and the death of Boromir. That all happens at the start of Two Towers. Uh, at the end of The Fellowship of the Ring, the book, it goes through Boromir trying to take the ring from Frodo and kind of that's the it's the breaking of the fellowship. But then the attack of the orcs starts off to uh, the two towers. So that's obviously just a, a difference within the books. Well, and I do, I do think that's, a, that's a, actually kind of an interesting note too, just as a, as a side point on the books. Like when Tolkien first wrote the books, he, he had envisioned them as a single publication of six, what he called books or major sections. And, uh, I think the, the, it was the publisher that came back and said, we've got to split these up. So I, um, you know, when it was, uh, written, it was written as a single huge piece. And the publisher made, I think, what, what, you know, looking at, you know, how it was turned into the three volumes of the book and the three volumes of the movies. Those splits are a little bit arbitrary. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, you know, it makes sense to have kind of the big climactic fight yeah. tied into the splitting of the fellowship at the end of this film, right? No doubt. Absolutely. Like that makes that makes a lot of a lot of sense. And but it's funny because I haven't seen the original versions since the extended edition was released. Yes. So. I know. That's crazy. That uh, to me that um but but I know that I I came away from the my sense memory of the extended edition ending is that I like it much much more because it gives me more affinity to Boromir after his initial um sort of uh character failing when he it has his his sequence with uh, Frodo asking for the ring. So that uh, that difference, like the difference of how he is handled as a character, is more significant to me in the extended edition. That was a great choice, and I think if anything, it was a miss having less Boromir in the original. But I'd have to go back and and watch that again to be completely sure. Yeah, right, right. That's where I stand. Let's talk a little bit about kind of the uh, the introduction of this level of fantasy in the world of film, because I think it was a hard-earned place to kind of come to fantasy like this, like this level of a high fantasy story that they felt an audience would 
would enjoy. I mean, I mean, we talked a little bit in our pre-show chat about kind of our history with the books and the animated films and the audio dramas, all that sort of stuff. But it's it's interesting. It was always kind of there. But like when you come to fantasy, like Ridley Scott did Legend, but it felt like the release that they had to release before the, well, even the director's cut feels a little silly. Like there's just, there's a lot of like this goofy comedy. Like they were trying to figure out, well, if it's going to be fantasy, it's either got to be like a lot of nearly naked people running around like Conan, like those sorts of films, mm-hmm. or it's got to right. be kind of for kids. And like you look at uh, what they did with Legend and sure, like the the creation of uh, Tim Curry's character is incredibly frightening, but then you have these like goofy, like elf characters that are just and dwarf characters that are super, super silly. And it just kind of brings the whole thing down because it's just like this dumb level of comedy that just feels like it's written for, you know, people under 10. And, uh, you know, and I know there were films like um, Dragonheart where they were trying to do something, but even that felt a little, I don't know how well it ended up feeling like we're going to do serious fantasy now i mean can you think of many serious fantasy films that were coming out that weren't necessarily like um scantily clad people or for kids is that crazy i can't but it's probably just because you asked the question i know um i i think you're right and it goes back to something that we you and i have talked about a lot that i actually think weirdly applies to this movie too specifically which is you know in in our conversation we've talked about the marvel movies and how iron man was the example of you have to earn your wizards by grounding them and uh by grounding the universe and world building and what's weird about this is it's almost the the, like in the first 15 minutes we actually have a wizard a bona fide wizard but i do think this movie does a, a a fine job of earning the wizard right because it's so grounded in culture of these peoples and it's so and the special effects early on in the movie like they are legit believable like we talk uh, you know we've and i know we've talked over the years using this movie as an example of the power of practical effects using forced perspective to actually create hobbits and they did a lot more than just forced perspective to create hobbits. I mean, there were, you know, giant suits and there were there was all sorts of of compositing. But largely, when you see that wagon with the seats separated that Gandalf shows up in so that it makes Frodo small next to him and uh, using that just sort of the optics of the camera to make a hobbit. I was completely bought in to the universe, right? I was completely bought into the universe. Like, they could have done just about anything because they grounded me in Hobbiton so well, and they made it fit in this bigger universe the second Gandalf rides in. So I I think when I look at at other movies that sort of uh, play in this space, weirdly over the last 23 years, 25 years, they kind of stand on the shoulders of this movie. I don't remember any other high fantasy film that stands out to me in a way that feels quite so human. Well, yeah, and I guess they are there. Like, I could name things like The Dark Crystal and Labyrinth, but again, those feel... Um, and we've talked about Labyrinth on the show before. They, there's definitely like this Jim Henson version of fantasy in those as opposed to kind of this real-world fantasy. 
Um, not to say, not to counter that like there's anything wrong with those. I think it's just a different type. And also, I'm not sure that those were as successful at the box office. And I think that was the thing. Because, I mean, you had, I mean, Terry Gilliam did Time Bandits and The Adventures of Aaron Munchausen, and that was a Lest notorious Let's forget flop. Willow, right? Uh, Willow, like, which, again, also kind of went into kind of some really goofy humor in that film. Goofy. But, I mean, again, they were trying to do stuff, you know, they were trying to be a little more serious with that one. Uh, but, again, I would say... Probably more for a younger audience. Never-ending story. Uh, the Princess Bride, I think that one may be the most successful. But again, that just feels like you could almost dismiss any of the fantasy elements and just look at that as a love story, like a period love story, because it's not like dragons are flying around in that film or anything, you know? Um, and stuff like Krull and, and Dragon Slayer. So they're there. Which I loved, by the way. As a oh, kid, like they, yeah. I absolutely the love those movies. Yeah, the effects are insane. Yeah. And, and even going to something that definitely is more adult, like John Borman's Excalibur, mm-hmm. I, I think that there are times where people are trying to do this type of fantasy. I just don't know if any of them were capturing the box office. And I think it, you know, I, I think people were a little concerned that, well, okay, you, it's either got to be cutesy, like Lady Hawk, it can be kind of a cutesy period thing. Or, or we need it to be something that uh, is definitely going to draw a kid audience because I'm just not sure otherwise if it's going to really tap into the zeitgeist. And that's the thing that I think probably made it really hard for uh, Peter Jackson to kind of get this thing off the ground. And I mean, talk about a challenge. You know, I mean, he was pitching this for a number of years, trying to prove that they could do this. And proving that they could do it with Weta as far as kind of using his these bigotures that they were doing and working with Alan Lee and John Howe, who were definitely people that were already in that space, but trying to prove to the studio that it's possible, but the best way to make sure that it's going to work as effectively as possible is to let us shoot the whole thing all back to back to back, which I can imagine when you're saying fantasy movie, trilogy, shot back-to-back, big budget, I can imagine that the studios were probably a little like, hmm, yeah, a little sketchy. We're not so sure that that's a great idea, you know? And, and this kind of money, I mean, we talk about, like, uh, those other precedent films, like, there's, I don't, there's nothing that, I, I, that I recall as having spent the sort of money, even relative, you know, to the currency 20 years prior, that competes with what they attempted to do or what they did here for these movies. That's extraordinary. It's an extraordinary swing. Yeah, it really, really is. And I mean, it took New Line and Warner Brothers, uh, you know, I mean, it was just a lot of uh, a lot of confidence in Jackson and his team that they could actually pull this off. And I think when they were able to show some of these images that Alan Lee and John Howe had come up with as far as the different spaces of the world that they wanted to create and they showed that weta could do this and they could do it all in new zealand where it wasn't going to be as much money as if they were trying to do it in la or somewhere else you know it gave them the confidence that they needed to move forward with it and it's you know it's i mean it's i i don't feel like we necessarily need to go into the production history of this too much because holy cow i mean if you watch these films and you if you have them on i'm assuming on the the digital versions too but the physical media is like Mm-hmm. It is, uh, you know, pr- many more hours of documentary behind the scenes footage, like how did they get these things made, than the length of the film. Like, it's just, there's so much content about how they got these things made. It's it's a stunning process that they went through 
to do it. And so that's, I think, just something that's really cool, definitely worth looking at. I don't know if we need to you know, have too much of a conversation about it since it's been talked about already so much. Yeah, I think I, I don't think so. I mean, that's not that's it. It's fine. Let's do what we do. Go watch the behind the scenes because it's extraordinary. I can't I mean, I can't recommend it highly enough. It's fantastic to watch how they how they bring this world to life. I, I mean, uh, let's just say as a, uh, you know, are there highlights to the production that that really light you up? That's a tricky question because, I mean, I could name a highlight probably from every single department Well, I, yes, on this yeah. film. Like, it's it's like everything about this lights me up. I, I, like, the, the character design lights me up. Mm-hmm. Like, the, the costume, uh, design. The costume design, the locations that they chose, yeah. the, the bigotures and the worlds that they ended up creating, the sets they built, the props they made, the, the hair and makeup. Like, everything about this film, they captured... A, a perfect um, representation of kind of like what I would see in my head as I would read these books. And it's just, right. I mean, it's, it's a, a stunning thing. And then just, I mean, you've already talked about it, but just like in a world uh, where you have these hobbits and dwarves and regular sized people, they, what uh, Peter Jackson and his team figured out as far as force perspective or using different sized actors to play to play these when they're all in the same shots with each other or you know and trying to limit how much actual cg they needed like it it your brain just buys into the fact that these are people of all different sizes and it's it's pretty impressive the way that they captured it all yeah that's that for my money that's what uh, that's where it is that the other is you know this movie dealing with starting to push on the bounds of uh of what is believable in terms of scale of of uh of fights and not making things uh like the way i uh, for me moria the way moria is architected the way that fight is architected in small spaces with bows and arrows and swords swinging and all of those things and a troll like those that's a that's a I, I watch that and I'm just profoundly moved by the way that entire sequence is architected uh, in a way that makes sense to me, that makes sense as a viewer. I never feel like I get lost in it. And I think what we're what we might find, I'll say what we will find is I know at least one of us uh, has more concerns on that very point in subsequent films in this series. I don't want to speak for you, man, but I know things start to get a little bit messy on the bigger fights and, uh, still fantastic. But this movie is the sweet spot for me in terms of being able to make sense of many characters in a broad ensemble cast, uh, and not lose the thread. Interesting. I, yeah, uh, well, I will, uh, certainly look forward to those conversations. But it's interesting you're kind of talking about like that with the scope that they were developing as far as creating these massive, massive battles and all of that. And just speaking to effects, I definitely like as I was watching this again, I was noting I'm like, OK, well, let's like what is there in here that I I don't buy as much? And so I was trying to say, OK, do I buy that? And there certainly are there are a couple moments of the of the forced perspective where sometimes it feels like, well, I don't think they're really next to each other. Or there's always a moment when I think it's when, uh, Aragorn tosses Sam across the, the, the broken stairs as they're fleeing through the mines. And that shot of him coming toward camera and then being caught by 
I, I think um, I'm not sure which person catches him, but whoever it is, you're looking at Sam's face and just like the movement of him through space and keeping that forced perspective always like seems a little funky to me. Like the, the, that effect never quite completely works. Like that's one of those moments where I'm like, eh, not quite, not quite there, but right. it's close enough. <laughs> that's fair. Um, yeah. And there was another one. I think it's when the orcs pick up uh, Marion Pippin also. Um, you know, that's another one where I'm like, eh, this is something is a little funky there. The one creature that has never really worked that well for me, and I, I don't know if it's because it's night or because it's wet or because it's dark uh, and uh, like kind of, you know, kind of a uh, not really moonlit, but it's the um, whatever the creature is that's in the lake outside of the door to the mines of Moria. <laughs> yeah. Cthulhu. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Crazy. Yeah. That, whatever that is. I, yeah. That creature has, has never quite looked right. It's always been like, I'm not sure what that, you know, it, it's, it looks just like some wet, muddy creature. And, uh, it's, I don't know. It's always kind of frustrated me a little bit that it never quite, that I never buy it, you know? That's funny. I, I, I've never had an issue with that one. When things come into question for me, I, I do agree with you when, when Mary and Pippin get picked up by the orcs, it feels a little bit, uh, a little bit forced, especially after, you know, at that point, two hours, two plus hours of, of having really successful scale, you know, accomplishments. Uh, it's funny when one thing stands out. That's, that to me is the thing, but I've never really had, I've never really been taken out of the movie at, at, with any of the big monsters. The trolls look great. The Balrog yeah. looks great. Like, oh, all Balrog, of those yeah, things yeah. Uh, are, are, I think, really extraordinary. Yeah. And it's, again, it's, it's just a minor thing, but it is always something that I notice. And I'm always like, oh, I wish that kind of looked a little better. Now, I suppose there is this point with the film where when it starts uh, and we're having some of the flashbacks to or, or, you know, it's not flashbacks, but Galadriel is kind of setting up the story and how Gollum found this ring and and uh, and Bilbo found it from him after it after fell off of, uh, of Gollum's fingers. And there is a part of me that is like, gosh, I kind of wish that Martin Freeman was in there. <laughs> in that yes. one little shot of him when he's uh finding it because that's just one of those things and i know it's just it's such a minor thing but it just it always goes through my head now like uh, oh well yeah i i remember having this feeling though when lord of the rings came out i was like baffled that they were going to throw so much money at lord of the rings without making the hobbit first like it just felt felt something felt broken to me like there was so much story in the hobbit about the ring and this is the journey of the ring to mordor like let's tell the story of how the ring gets in the hobbit's hands in the first place and that that felt missing it felt like like making chapter two before chapter one and that was bonkers i couldn't wrap my head around it ultimately it's fine like if it's important to me i can always watch the hobbit series first but who's going to do that like that's not that's insanity well, why would i sit through i all probably those? would why would i sit through all those movies at high frame rate when i could just watch the lord of the rings i i wouldn't watch them <laughs> at high frame rate but oh i like yeah. the hobbit movies i they're not as enjoyable as these but i still like them and i think there's definitely a little bit of a tonal shift because of the feel of the book which definitely was written for a younger audience yes. um but I, I, well, but no, I just, I just to your point though, I felt that what Jackson actually did with, uh, we should say with, of course, his his writing team writing this with Philip Aboyans and his wife Fran Walsh, 
of actually like introducing the film with this narration by Kate uh, Blanchett as Galadriel, setting everything up. And so I actually felt like I wasn't missing The Hobbit because of that fantastically written setup for this film that we have, where we really get a sense of all of that. And so I didn't, I wasn't missing that. I thought it was fine. Yeah, no, I, well, and that's what I mean. Like once I saw the movies, like it was, it was okay. And I think the setup of this movie, particularly in the extended edition, when you add the concerning hobbits back once again, I think is, is uh, really great. So question about a few story points, because there are a few moments in this film where, where we're treated to some cinematic fake outs. And I wonder if they work for you, if it's too many, or if it's uh, too few, or if it's just right, just like the three bears. It, we have a moment where our heroes have, uh, they've encountered uh, Strider, a.k.a. Aragorn, in The Prancing Pony. Um, he has now told them, you know, he's he's here to help, blah, blah, blah. and. Then uh, we see the the riders, the 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 black riders, uh, these Nazgul, crash through the gates into the town of Bree. They come into the prancing pony. We see the the innkeeper kind of cowering behind a counter as they all kind of move past him in their freaky way. They go into the room and they hold their swords over the beds, and then they stab, 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 stab only to reveal that it's just a bunch of uh, feathers underneath. And, you know, as as we're seeing all this, we're kind of intercutting to our, all, all of the hobbits asleep, only to find out, oh, they're actually asleep in the inn across the street. Strider was smart enough to kind of pick a different place, and so the Nazgul are tricked. We have our, our first little fake out there. Later, in the Mines of Moria, as everybody's, uh, you know, fighting inside Balan's tomb, we have... Uh, you know, this cave troll that gets in. They've killed all the goblins, but this cave troll is kind of taking all of them to battle. And uh, the cave troll grabs a spear and stabs Frodo, who kind of collapses and everyone thinks he's dead and is very sad, only to reveal as he rolls over that he's totally fine because he was wearing Bilbo's mithril coat. And mithril, of course, is basically a bulletproof vest, and it kept him from getting injured at all, didn't even get a bruise, and he's totally fine. And so we have those two fake outs. Do they, how do they work for you? Uh, because I don't recall them being so like constructed to be fake outs in the book. In the book. Wow. That is, that would be a tough comparison for me to make in terms of the cinematic fake out. Um, I, I, I did not have a problem with them at all. I, I really didn't. I, it, the, the one of the prancing pony, I think would be the, the more legitimate, like that, that falls more legitimately in, in the term fake out for me, uh, because it's, they're really trying to trick me, right? They're trying to trick me to build intensity and build the fear that something's going to happen to the poor hobbits. As an audience member, I already knew about the mithril coat, uh, and because I've seen Frodo putting it on. So it, it's, I think it's, it's rational for me to see him getting hit with by the um by the troll and think oh he's probably going to be fine because of that thing that i saw two and a half hours ago right yeah so that didn't that one didn't bug me the um neither of them bugged me but that one doesn't feel like a fake out because an audience member i was already in on the joke even though the party wasn't in this case i do find that the trick of uh of the 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 stabbing of the mattresses is it's fine. I, I like feeling like that's a like that's that's a building of intensity. That's what the movie's supposed to do. 
Did that hit you sideways? No, no, no. It's it, but it does feel like a cinematic trick that they are they're amping up the tension of the scene by kind of constructing it that way purposefully saying, oh, we're going to make it make the audience think that because I mean, obviously, not everyone who saw the movie had read the books, but we're doing it in a way where it's going to seem like these guys are in the room and they are actually going to kill all of our hobbits. And so it was just an interesting cinematic tool, I think, that uh, Jackson and co introduced into the script to kind of give us this uh, extra tension here. And I mean, it worked for me. I don't know if we needed it, but I I thought that it actually worked uh, pretty well. Yeah, I do too. And especially when I think of the alternative, right? The alternative is we have a scene of Strider, like, I don't know, they all go up to the room and Strider's standing on the roof and he's sneaking them out of the window so nobody knows that they're moving across the street, right? I, I don't know, something to show, to demonstrate the transfer from in to in totally deflates the intensity of that sequence when the Black Riders are there. And the Black Riders, if any group in this movie, demands intensity. And so I'm I'm fine with it. I think our introduction to the Black Riders, when, when you know, we have the little story of the Black Riders, but then, they you know, when they all hide under the log, that's like a quintessential Lord of the Rings, like, fellowship moment. From the book, too, from the animated series, we have them, the, the Black Rider looking over the log incredibly intense and sniffing and sniff oh it's so great it's great and disgusting and scary and all of the above and all the insects come out what an awesome addition to that sequence uh to make that just look so real and dirty and uh, awesome like every one of the black rider sequences needs this level of of intensity and using just a straight up filmmaking trick and editing trick to make that happen is awesome i'm i'm i think that's great I'm sure in in our catalog, there is a clip of me saying how much I hate being tricked by this kind of stuff. But here it works. No, it's I mean, it's fine. I, I think it's fine. Actually, I should say the thing that probably I, I wonder, I'm like, they said it. And I'm like, I wonder if, if he's irritated about this because they say, and here you are, the fellowship of the ring. It's in my notes, Andy. <laughs> <laughs> We hadn't gotten to the departure of the fellowship yet, but I would yep. have gotten there. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. Oh, so funny. So funny. You brought up uh, your sense of comedy and the tonal change in comedy from the, the, the you know, between this and The Hobbit. And I, I'm curious your take on the use of comedy in this movie, because we have some characters that are dedicated to the comedic moments and, and uh, how well they're used, I think, might define your love or not of the character. For me, you know, we I, I, I see Marion Pippin as a, a, a locus of comedic energy because of their relationship. It's written so funny, you know, do you think he knows about second breakfast, right? Th these little bits of dialogue that we get are fantastic. And the other is Gimli, using Gimli as sort of a comedic punching bag just because of the difference in culture and stature and all of the things that that dwarves bring to the table when they have their, uh, the, their noted animosity between uh, dwarves and elves. I I'm curious your take on those elements, the comedic elements in the movie. How how well, how fair do you think they are? And note, I'm using this as a bookmark again as we chart the 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 tonal changes through the last two movies as well. There's definitely comedy, and it's definitely kind of an introduction to it because I don't recall there being that much comedy with any of the characters in Tolkien's writings. Um, I, I mean, he's, I, I, I don't I, think he's. A noted I'm, high fantasy <laughs> comic writer. Yeah. Uh, well, and it's interesting because, I mean, I think there is definitely joy in 
some of the comedic characters created like Marion Pippin, they, it, it really kind of lends to the, um, you know, that sense concerning hobbits of that type of character and these simpler people. And I, I don't know, it's just the way that Marion Pippin were created. I, I think I end up enjoying it so much because I felt like they were written well, played well by our two actors playing them. Uh, just, I, I have so much fun um, watching Billy Boyd and, and Dominique Monaghan as, as, um, as Marion Pippin. They are really fun. They capture kind of that essence. And to your point, it's not necessarily going to be kind of this consistent, goofy thread of the characters over the next few films. It's like we're starting in a lighter tone, and over the course of this entire trilogy, there's going to be kind of this shift as some of that comedy is kind of cut back on. And it's, you know, it, we're going from a happier place to a time of great strife and struggle as they go into battle and everything. And I mean, the next film, they are... We're starting that film with them in they have been taken by the orcs and now they are having to deal with all of that. And 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 so it's an interesting shift in in them. And yeah, same thing with uh with Gimli, particularly in his relationship with uh Legolas, because there's kind of this natural animosity built into the uh, all of Tolkien's writings between dwarfs and and elves. And so that is definitely kind of kept up consistently. And and probably I'd say their comedy kind of extends farther through the trilogy because, I mean, even like when we're doing the, you know, through the second and even the third film in all of our big battle scenes, they are still like having battle or, you know, competitions as far as like who has killed the most and that sort of thing. So they definitely keep that up with those characters. And I think it's, I don't know, I, I feel like they're allowing it to play in a fun way where you get this sense of um, it builds the sense of camaraderie with the characters and allows for them to kind of the actors in particular to really find um, something fun to play with in the characters themselves. Yeah, I think in this movie in particular, it's it's great, right? I I like that element in this movie, particularly because I don't think it goes too far and I don't think it becomes tired and i'm i'm curious and it's been it's now been several years since i've watched the last two movies and with this question in mind is there any point later that it feels like it goes from um what i think it accomplishes here developing a relationship with a broader audience quadrant right like we with, you know younger kids might be laughing at gimli in a way that brings them into the universe more to the point yet in later movies where the the bickering might not be as as funny anymore in the darker elements of the movie. That's that's my big sort of central question around how this film handles comedy is it's used as it feels like it's used as a tool to build affinity with the characters for a broader audience segment. And does that continue to work later? I I, I think that's I think that's a, an interesting question for me. Well, I think we should kind of just kind of continue this conversation about kind of the comedy level as we kind of discuss each film. Yes. Um, in this particular film, I don't really have any issues. I mean, I don't feel like once we get once we get to the Mines of Moria and we're past the point where uh, Gandalf falls in his battle with the Balrog, I feel like there's definitely that kind of darker tone as everybody is kind of now struggling and mourning. And I don't feel like there's really as much of the comedy through the end of the film at all. And uh, smartly, and I, I suppose that's kind of the the smart uh, construction of the script, where we're not kind of allowing that to play out at that point. Agreed. Yeah. 
Now, I I have a question for you. Mm -hmm. And this is definitely something to kind of consider over the course of these films. But what are we meant to feel as an audience about the cave trolls? (laughs) What are we meant to feel? Okay. (laughs) And I say this. I say this because, and I just, I, I feel like I, I want to just kind of continue this exploration over the course of this uh, trilogy. And I want to w- look at this as we watch, because as we know, Peter Jackson has always had an affinity for King Kong. And that's a very tragic story about this <laughs> giant gorilla and this tragedy about this creature who, you know, humans drag to their world and then realize he just really, this is not a place for him. And he ends up, uh, you know, we end up killing him and he falls and dies. Sure. In this film, of course, the goblins, they kill, kill, kill all the goblins. Um, the cave troll, they bring the cave troll, the goblins do. And, uh, you know, we've got that great line from uh, from Boromir is like, oh, they've brought a cave troll, like very frustrated that now they've got to deal with that. And the cave troll comes in and is giving them a lot of grief. But I can't help but feel like Jackson is giving us this sense of tragedy as they fight and finally kill this cave troll. Like it takes a lot of fighting to actually bring him down, like at one point. Um, uh, Lego Lass is on top of his head and shoots a, uh, an arrow into his skull. And then at the end, he shoots uh, like an arrow up into its throat, into its brain. And you just hear this kind of this sad, oh, as it's yeah. like struggling <laughs> and it collapses and dies. The music feels a little sadder and everybody's just kind of standing there as this cave troll falls and collapses. And I, I, I can't help but feel like, is this Jackson's King Kong in this film? Like these big creatures that are forced into servitude by these goblins. They don't really probably want to be there to fight. They're obviously not as smart as the mountain trolls that we have in The Hobbit who, who you know, are, are eating you know the ponies and the hobbits. It just seems like this dumb creature. And we will see them. I can't remember if we see them in Two Towers, actually. I think we do during uh, Hel- the Battle of Helm's Deep. But definitely in the third film, and we'll see them where it seems like they are kind of being used and abused by the people taking care of them. And so that's why I'm like, is this the King Kong of the franchise? Well, and I love that you, I love that you bring it up that way because I, I, it hadn't occurred to me. But as you're talking, I'm trying to think of any other creatures in this series that don't have an express motivation of good or evil, right? The cave troll feels like a manifestation or a tool. It, it is The cave troll is as much a battering ram that we see in the later films as it is, you know, a, a, you know at less a, a malevolent character, right? It feels like it's it, like the rest of the characters, you're right, the mountain trolls, they they eat hobbitses, right? The Gollum is, a, is you know, we have Gollum, we get a little bit of sympathy as we hear more and more of his story later. But at this point, he's just a malevolent entity of greed. And so it's, it's curious to me, to the same extent that you could see in this movie, the orcs themselves are a manifestation of evil as a tool. Uh, but would they necessarily, if they were not given uh, a job, would they just create a little, like, you know, sort of vegetationless plot and live out their lives? <laughs> I wonder. Yeah, maybe. I mean, but to a certain extent, like, the, the, at least with the orcs, though, like, they clearly have brains enough to kind of, yeah. like, you know, communicate and and create their own civilization, as it were. And the the way that he's creating the cave troll is almost like 
what he does with the elephants later in the third film. It's just a creature and it's just an animal that is kind of being used and abused by the uh, by the, the the evil army to fight. And to that end, I can't help but think that Jackson is really intending us to have this sense of, oh, poor cave troll. Yeah, I wonder what the cave troll culture is. Like, do, do they do cave troll cage fighting, like where they bet against them? Like, is this it? Like, what is the cave troll uh, corollary <laughs> to our world? Is it dog fighting? Is it cock fighting? Is it like, what is the awful thing that they do with cave trolls that we can relate to? Yeah, there's a sad, sad story. The yeah, plight of the somebody cave needs troll. to make that movie. <laughs> <laughs> Somewhere out there in this multiverse, uh, Hermione Granger is creating a group to petition yes. people to stop the abuse yes. of cave trolls. The Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter cinematic universe. That's right. That's right. Yeah. I want to talk about the cast a little bit. I, I can't help but feel this cast is perfect. And I want to run through other options because there were a number of different people who had been offered some of these roles or who had even started performing some of these roles and things were changed. And I just want to get your sense of thoughts as far as the where, where they landed from options they had. Some of this is hysterically funny to me. Yes. Can you see Jake Gyllenhaal playing Frodo? No, of course not. No. Okay. He auditioned. Can you but... see Jake Gyllenhaal? No, 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 That's not ridiculous. at all. Elijah Wood ends up like so perfectly embodying Frodo. Yeah. It's yeah. crazy. Now, as far as Ian McKellen, it was, um, you know, common. I don't know. I thought it was common knowledge. Maybe not. But Sean Connery was actually offered the part, but didn't really understand it. And so, uh, this so is... he passed <laughs> and later regretted it. This is the thing we've I think we've talked about this on the show how funny it is that Sean Connery didn't take this role because he didn't understand the plot of the story and instead because he was talking to his kids/grandkids they said you got to do a fantasy movie like this so he said okay here's the next one I got to I guess I just have to say yes and did the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. <laughs> oh, I know. So sad. Amazing amazing so sad. story. Yep. Um, other people who um, either were considered for Gandalf or they had wanted but never approached. Patrick Stewart, they actually asked him, but he turned it down because he didn't like the script. Patrick McGuhan was offered it, but he's he had health issues, so had to decline. Christopher Plummer turned it down. Sam Neill turned it down because he was busy with Jurassic Park 3. And uh, McKellen was then offered it, but... Um, had to deal with his schedule because he was uh, there were conflicts with X-Men, and so they had to kind of adjust the schedule, but they did land on him. Thank the Lord, because he is so perfect. Well, I'm curious. I mean, you ran through those names pretty quickly. Is there anyone in that list that you could also have seen adapt to this role? Perhaps Sam Neill is right out. <laughs> yeah, I, Sam Neill. I'm like, really? Hmm, okay. I don't know if I would have picked Sam Neill as my choice. Patrick McGuhan is probably the one I could see the most. And maybe it's because, I don't know, when I think of him, I already am thinking kind of that kind of older times. You know, he seems somebody in period. And maybe it's because I'm generally thinking of him from like um, Braveheart, where he's the king. But also, yeah. he does have a little bit of a an angrier look maybe not as kind of look at least you know the in my thinking of him so maybe that would have made it harder for me to see but yeah patrick stewart i could have seen but it's interesting he just didn't like the script at all yeah i think that's really interesting and it's not like he had a dearth of other things <laughs> to, to contend with right i mean at the time he was still he he's such a uh such uh, a 
so deeply into the Star Trek um, Picard roles, but I I find it fascinating. I see him as such a as a more diminutive man. Like I think it would be harder to portray him as uh, as with the largesse that I think is required of Gandalf. I could absolutely see Plummer uh, playing the role. That would have been fascinating to me to see Christopher Plummer in this role. I I, I could have done that. I think that uh, I think what they did with McKellen is extraordinary, and he's amazing. And uh, now I can see nobody else, but I could I could have seen Plummer take this on for sure. Yeah. Another very famous one was Stuart Townsend, who was actually cast as Aragorn, and then, which, I mean, boggles my mind, because I see Stuart Townsend, I'm like, really, I just don't see it at all. Yeah. Uh, he ended up getting replaced once they started production, because uh, Peter Jackson realized that he was too young for the part, and so brought Viggo Mortensen on. But before that, they actually offered it to Daniel Day-Lewis, who turned it down, Nicolas Cage, but he he declined. And I guess Vin Diesel had auditioned, but uh, they they didn't pick the him. him. Um, and actually, after Stuart Townsend was cast and they realized he was wrong, they actually thought about Russell Crowe, but he actually turned it down because he didn't want to be typecast since he had just done Gladiator. What a relief, because I think Viggo Mortensen is extraordinary. And I would never have imagined Viggo Mortensen in this role, given the kind of stuff that he was already doing. That's, ama- that's amazing. Yeah, it's, it's such an interesting uh, journey for that particular character. Yeah. Um, Sean Bean got Boromir, but Liam Neeson was sent the script but passed. And Bruce Willis said he was interested because he's a big fan of the books, uh, but they didn't even consider him. I don't know... Like, again, Sean Bean, and maybe it's just because of the memes and everything, but it's so hard to kind of step away from Sean Bean in that role. Yeah, I mean, Bruce Willis, uh, Liam Neeson, like these, these, I can't imagine. Neeson, I can imagine over Willis because uh, you're just being a, you know, having a better accent. Yeah. But it's really Sean Bean. It's really Sean Bean. He's, that was perfect. Right. Billy Connolly actually wanted... Uh, or he was considered for the part of Gimli, but they ended up giving it to John Rhys Davies. Uh, but they couldn't let go of the idea of Billy Connolly playing a dwarf. So in the Hobbit films, he ended up playing Ironfoot in those. And so he did get a chance to actually play the part, which is great. Yeah. Um, Helena Bonham Carter was interested in playing Arwen, but they this was the one role that they're like, you know, we'd really love to have a Hollywood star in the film, at least one. And so Liv Tyler at the time was that. And so that gave them their little moment to cast a Hollywood person. And so and I, I love Liv Tyler in the role of Arwen. I think she really feels so natural in the part. Uh, and we have some big Liv Tyler news. She's about to come back into the into the the light, into the Marvel light. Did you hear that? Yes, indeed, indeed. Been a long, long time. That's right. Interesting to see her um, back in the MCU. Now, here's an interesting thing. Can you imagine instead of Kate Blanchett playing Galadriel? <laughs> just close your eyes, Bruce Willis. Close your eyes and picture this. No, even better, mm-hmm, even mm-hmm. better. Mm-hmm. Lucy Lawless. <laughs> Uh, alas, Andy, I cannot. <laughs> now, I know she had Xena for many, many years, but that's the strangest possible like, choice could to you, consider. I can't quite imagine the tr- the transition from Xena, Warrior Princess. I mean, you can hear Warrior <laughs> Princess and maybe get there, but you'd have to squint pretty hard 
Oh, yeah, that's yeah, that's that, the version that of, of tragedy. The Lord of the Rings that uh, you know was not the right version. Definitely not yes. the right version. Yeah, but you, you know what? That's a really good point. Like how careful that and how how frail, fragile that line is that you have to walk in casting fantasy characters in high fantasy movies. Like true, right? Absolutely. That's but it's it's just like like you also could have cast who was it who played Beastmaster, right? Like he could have been Aragorn for sure, but it would have been a very different movie. Yeah. Well. Not the movie that we're talking about, you know, 22 years later. Exactly. This one should come as no surprise. Christopher Lee is such a fan of Tolkien's books. He's the one of the one of the people who reads it every year. He's met J.R.R. Tolkien, and he actually auditioned, but for Gandalf, and uh, and that was one of those roles that Jackson said, you know, you're too old for that part, but you would be perfect as Saruman the White, and is he ever? He is. In fact, his I... <laughs> his story about when he gets stabbed in the back in the third film uh, is a highlight, and I'm sure we'll chat about it at that point. But but I'm curious about the age issue. Like, do you, I mean, can you see, like, what, all they did to Gandalf was age him up, like, for McKellen. I think, I don't, I don't understand that. Can, he's behind a giant beard anyway. He's behind a giant beard, but, I mean, I think that they were about, uh, I don't know, 17 years apart, those two. And I just feel like when I see Ian McKellen, I can still see him being pretty mobile and doing things like a lot more actively. Whereas when I see, when I see Christopher Lee, I don't know if I, well, maybe coming right off of uh, attack of the clones, actually that would have been right after these, but uh, cause he wasn't in the first one. Um, but I don't know if I would have seen Christopher Lee as, uh, as somebody who I felt was as spry a person. So I, I don't know. Yeah. I, spry. That is a good, that's a good consideration. Yeah. It's more yeah. than looks. Yeah. Yeah. Hugo Weaving uh, plays Elrond, but actually David Bowie wanted the part. Uh, Peter Jackson, though, smartly said, to have a famous beloved character and a famous star colliding is slightly uncomfortable. And I think that's uh, a valuable uh, point to have uh, brought up there, because I think that is one of those things that, I mean, you know, he's great in Labyrinth, but you also can't watch it without going, oh, but that's David Bowie playing the part. But, you know, he's also great in The Prestige. Right. Yeah, but that's just like a bit part. Like I, I, I and it, it does feel a little bit like stunt casting. Does it really? Do you? I, I, I don't. I actually, I really like him. I do see the, I can see the reticence in casting him in that role. But I also think like it. I think he, I could see him. I think he could have pulled it off. I, and I'm also not saying I, I would prefer him over Hugo Weaving. I mean, Hugo Weaving is legendary. Yeah. Yes, Elrond. Legendary. One of his one of his legendary oh. trilogies that he's done. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Ian Holm, of course, did the radio adaptation. He played Frodo in the radio show. And uh, Jackson remembered the performance and offered him the part. But he had a backup just in case Holm said no. And it was, in fact, Sylvester McCoy who ends up playing Radagast the Brown in The Hobbit. So um, obviously that was a name that he kept handy as well so that he could bring back when they did the hobbit yeah so it's interesting Doctor i mean who yeah it's it's a very interesting list of actors and performers and just like you look at what they ended up bringing to the table as far as this cast and it's just i mean it's just stunning and it's perfect like i i can't think of a single one where i'm like 
I still kind of wish they would have had a different person play that part. Like, I just, I don't, there's not a single one. Uh, do you have any standout orcs? We have uh, Lawrence Makoare as Lertz, the the commander of the Urukai, uh, and he gets some fantastic evil hero moments, uh, which are were just great. Uh, and I, I, I don't want to leave this conversation without having a conversation about how the orcs are handled in these movies, because we start talking about the animated series, like the orcs look very different in the animated series and didn't look quite as threatening to me. Um, in the animated, at least in the the first uh, animated version, that my memory of the orcs is so oh, they're kind of like walking gray bubbles. <laughs> well, I love uh, you know the, the creation of the orcs, the goblins, the urukai, the the black riders. They're so horrifying, and you know you have that birth scene of the urukai as they oh. kind of pull him out of that sack that the you know that kind of gross embryonic sack thing that they're growing these things in and it's just gruesome and it feels so raw and visceral and dirty it's just like it's a it's such a surprisingly perfect way to create incredibly creepy villains that all look great they're they're terrifying and i just i'm so impressed with the makeup jobs and the creature designs that they came up with for these films and i love how you've got kind of that as as lurts is kind of walking through the forest at the end he's got that like that white hand uh marking painted onto his face kind of like when saruman touched him as as you kind of put his hand on his face like they're all part of this army of saruman's and it's just i don't know it just all lends to this wonderfully kind of um just i don't know just a really creepy group of characters and when you have sauron talking to saruman and saying build me an army and this is what you get you're like yep that's about what i expected for an evil army yeah well an evil army and as a manifestation of their dual role of antagonist right which is like not only are they chasing the fellowship and they're trying to get the ring but they're also uh, manifestation of anti-environmentalism, right? Like the the it is watching them destroy the landscape and pull the trees with their deep roots down and build these underground, and that they are born of the same earth which they are destroying, which is I, I think just a a fantastic uh, bit of uh, of uh, you know, treatment in these in these films is um, is fantastic because we get we get to feel our hate of them before they even get into the mode of really attacking our principal characters, right? Like we hate them already because of what they're doing to their own land and, and you know what that looks like. And I think that's, it is grotesque and, and wonderful in the way they're portrayed. Yeah. And I mean, your point, which definitely warrants uh, just bringing it up again, but that, that whole focus of the idea of industry versus environment, that was such a key part of Tolkien's focus on these stories. I mean, that that's handled incredibly well, as you see Saruman representing industry and what industry does to the environment as far as ripping everything down and destroying it and digging in it and uh, just mutilating uh, all aspects of anything you know that feels like part of nature. It just like it's all gone. And and that opposite the elves and kind of how how um earthy and uh you know tree loving and everything they are. It's 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 such an interesting like you go from that and then you go to uh to see Lothlorien and you see these elves like living 
in harmony with the trees and and it's just like it's such a difference and and that will definitely continue over the course of this series as you kind of get that and that's it was very important to tolkien and it really shows uh the way that uh, jackson and his team created all of these spaces and you don't get much of him but uh we do have Gollum. Ah, uh, yes. Uh, another element that I, I know Peter Jackson came, once they were doing the second and third films, he would talk about how he kind of wished he could go back into the first film and tweak it. I'm glad he hasn't. It's fine. And again, I, you know, same thing that I mentioned about, I kind of wish Martin Friedman was in there. Um, but at the same time, it's like, you know what, this film is perfect the way it is. You don't want to change any of that. And yeah, you get little flashes of Gollum um, because, again, they hadn't quite figured out what they were doing with Gollum for the second and third films. Just enough to uh, to give you a sense of this creature that is desperate to get the ring back and who's following them because he wants it so badly. It's And a valuable lesson that Gandalf is going to instill in Frodo about the idea of, you know, being careful about killing things. And, and that's... I think such a valuable lesson that he teaches Frodo in that moment, because there are points where Frodo could have like in the next film where he could kill Gollum, but it's like, well, he's lucky he didn't because he really needed Gollum to actually make it through um, the, the entire rest of this whole thing. So, and, and of course, you know, the, the challenges that uh, Peter Jackson had figuring out what they're going to do with this character on screen were not, uh, not, lost on Andy Serkis, who had the same challenges with figuring out if he was going to even take this role. And uh, so lucky that he did, because it becomes a transformational point in his career, too, and makes him a central um, figure in the motion capture business uh, and his ability to act and portray. And it is one of the, and I'm sure we'll talk more about this, one of the great losses, um, you know, in his professional career that, that a motion capture character performance like this hasn't been given more industry and awards acclaim because he is incredibly good as this character. From this, he really creates an entire uh, business for himself of doing this and training people how to do this motion capture acting. I mean, it's, it's so fascinating how he's developed this into a thing. And I mean, he's also has his own career. He's also acting. He's been getting plenty and a great of, director, plenty of other things. Yeah. So it's not like he hasn't been only doing motion capture work. So it's, it's great to see that he's been keeping so busy with all this. Two other things that I want to bring up. Um, one is, the look. I want to chat a little bit about the way that Peter Jackson shoots his film, these films in particular, uh, and and just try to get a read from you as to how does his style and his approach. A lot of times he will have these kind of like um, wider angle lenses, like moving into characters' faces. A lot of like these these big camera moves like into somebody and the the lens it's not like a wide wide angle like fisheye lens or something but it's definitely a wider than normal lens and so you move in on someone's face and there's a little bit of that distortion and the angle kind of goes a little dutch and there's a lot of that sort of movement throughout and also just to mention like coming from the sorts of films that uh, jackson had done previously like very specifically i'm thinking of heaven's creatures or heavenly creatures where in their fantasy worlds that the characters were creating, they 
ended up having these kind of um, characters that all felt like they were made with like clay faces. And you definitely get some of that style of creature design, particularly when Frodo goes into his, I just call it the kind of the shadow zone where he's, he's, I was going to mention. And, and specifically when they're on Weathertop and, uh, the, the five, uh, black riders are up there and he puts the ring on and you get the, shadow version of the nazgul and they look like these these kings the you know once kings who kind of have that same sort of clay uh face that jackson was such a fan of in some of his other films what do you think of what jackson is bringing to this in his own directorial style and influences well, I think you're I mean, I think you're right. The movie has its own certainly has its own tone and a tone that is absolutely consistent with uh, across the three films and expanded into the the six films of The Hobbit. I think, you know, to the same uh, to the same effect, though, less so in The Hobbit. The Hobbit, I think, pushes things forward in a way that's interesting, if not palatable to all. Um, I this movie, I feel like, is, um, you know, the way they use the the wides uh, is really interesting in and around the use of or the the portrayal of the ring as a character right because the ring has its own identity it has a voice that we hear we in the d- black speech the dark speech um when we see the ring in a character's hand right using the the those uh wide angles sort of almost <laughs> almost macro right on the ring but actually it's a it's a giant ring that they're shooting um super wide like i think all of those things really add to the character of the place and i don't notice it uh as much when we're just shooting characters in world but when we go into the 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 ring world and we see as you say the nazgul with the clay faces and their outfits which become almost watercolor like the 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 sort of um uh juxtaposition of those tones in that black world on top of being kind of the x-ray uh almost x-ray kind of uh color timing is uh, incredible and uh, and scary and um, it brings a, a real high degree of texture. I think we get what what are the the other areas when we when we move into the Urukai and sort of Sauron the Whites area and we go to the tower and start seeing the eye as it manifests between those giant forks. That's when uh, another uh, another sequence where we end up seeing big things shot close and wide. And uh, and I think it I think it works really, really well. It does give the give the film a a solid personality. I think that's exactly it. And I I I was trying to remember. I'm like, did I remember seeing much of this particular shooting style, like the way that he was moving the camera in previous or subsequent films? And I can't remember very specifically. Maybe in like uh, something like uh, Dead Alive, there might have been some of that and kind of his because it's such a horror comedy. And that camera movement certainly has this kind of Sam Raimi. It can have that kind of goofiness when it's kind of moving in on people with a wide angle lens and distorting them. And I was just I was trying to remember, like, how much of that is in just his regular style versus how much of that was something that he imbued in Middle Earth as he kind of wanted to kind of craft the story here with that specific look. And I just I can't remember specifically, but I do really enjoy his style. And I think that it works well. I think if anything, there's one shot. Oh, gosh, it's toward the end of the film when they're in I can't remember the name of the place, but just kind of that that hillside where 
the Urukai, they're all fighting. And there's a shot where it feels like a, the camera's on a wire over the forest. And it's just kind of moving across just to kind of give you a sense of scope of stuff as they're doing it. But I just, I'm never satisfied with that shot. It always feels like it's never either as full as it needs to be or as mo- moving the way that I feel like it should be moving. Like, it's not like a drone. It's pre-drone. And so it's one of those shots that I know he does. He really likes those over the over the battle shots to give you a sense of scope. But that was an early one before they were doing as much of the CG sorts of shots. And so it just always felt like that's a camera on a wire floating through the forest, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Yeah, right. But, right. but otherwise, I'm really impressed with, with the way that he crafts these stories. Yeah. The last note that I wanted to bring up, uh, because as much as all of the crew is bringing their all to this story and crafting something that is so perfect, I just have to call out Howard Shore and his score because the music in this, like what Howard Shore ended up doing with this is just mind-boggling and stunning. Like the the way that he found such interesting instrumentation to kind of represent the different groups and and really went for that operatic thematic style of music where he crafted themes for everything um like uh, to the point where like when the elephants come in in the third film like they have their own little theme like everything has its own theme it's just that is such a masterful way to kind of have built this in such a big bombastic way i just i love this score and it just it just hits me every time i'm listening how his music for this is such a key part of it well, and I think part of that is, you know, just knowing how much Peter Jackson likes music, right, and and has such great attentiveness to to the sound and tone of every every single frame. Like, right? it just feels like everything is underscored with either wonderful sound or great score hits. I think it's really great. Just in terms of Jackson, like, where do you stand on on other non Hobbit slash Middle Earth uh, explorations of Jackson's filmmaking? Well, I uh, he's a, a I think a a a fun filmmaker who has a lot of joy with the projects that he makes. But um, I've never saw Bad Taste. I saw Meet the Feebles, and I didn't care for that at all. It was just it was just eh, it was just a little much, you know. I just it was it's, I mean it's just kind of a satire on the puppet like Muppet sorts of things. I just didn't dig it. Um Brain Dead, aka Dead Alive. I love that one. I have so much fun with it. I just it it makes me laugh every time. Heavenly Creatures, incredibly creative story that um really kind of got them on the map because they got an Oscar nomination for the script with that one. Uh The Frighteners, I had a great time with that one. I don't think I loved it, but I still had a great time with it. Very fun movie. Michael J. Fox, uh, uh D. Wallace and uh jake Busey, uh arlie ermy um i just yeah it's a very fun film i feel like it's good to bring up d wallace just because you know she called us wussies that one time that one time that's right uh king kong i i thought he did a great revisioning of king kong although i think it was definitely another example of just like let's let him do whatever he wants and it ended up feeling really bloated yeah um, and then, of course, the three Hobbit films and The Lovely Bones, which is the other than Bad Taste, the only film of his that I never watched. And I just didn't hear much that was good about it, other than the fact that um, Stanley Tucci was great in the film and got an Oscar nomination for his performance. Um, and then I never saw the documentary that he did, They Shall Not Grow Old. Two documentaries. So when you talk about The Beatles Get Back, uh, that three part massive uh, thing 
Uh, it was it's technically a quote miniseries, so I know you probably didn't see it or wouldn't, but it was uh, well apart from being long winded. If you like the Beatles, you will love this thing. It is, it's, it's weirdly well put together, but this is the thing about these last two pieces, right? Between the Beatles and They Shall Not Grow Old. I saw They Shall Not Grow Old, uh, theatrically. These are the things where he's taking old film and modernizing it, right? Like he's, he's trying to make it, uh, palatable and to recover it, to restore it in some new ways, right? New technology bringing to bear on, on these, uh, very, very old, bits of, of original film, in some cases quite decayed uh, original film, and making it, you know, something that feels human again, especially in the case of They Shall Not Grow Old, taking this old war footage and, you know, presenting it at, um, you know, normal frame rates for us, so we don't, it doesn't look like these, these you know, soldiers are running across battlefields at super high speed, right? He's really normalizing all of that and colorizing it, so um, he's really taking a, a Turner approach to old, old footage. It's extraordinary. There's well, no and giving them voice too, right? And giving them voice. There's no other way to say it than it's extraordinary. Does it feel legitimate to the time that he's creating? I never really got that. I, I never really got into that zone. Um, same thing with the Beatles, like taking all of this back footage of uh, of their like rehearsals and practices, all gearing up toward this rooftop concert. Um, some cases, like giving them a voice that doesn't quite line up with with what it feels like they're saying, or applying voice when heads are turned, so because you think that's what you heard them say, uh, you know, it, it doesn't always line up for me, and so um, it it just feels a little bit faked in a way that's inauthentic. Uh, so as beautiful a, a parade of technology as he's put together, as a documentarian, I struggled with them. Personally, I struggled. So, yeah, your mileage may vary. Uh, and those are just like what he's directing, because he's also like, I mean, he produced District 9. He produced uh, Adventures of Tintin. And I know there had been a lot of talk, like, is he going to direct it? Is Spielberg going to direct it? Like, where's that going to go? And because they're both such fans of the character and the stories. Um, so I, I think they'll probably continue working if they keep making those things. And then to your point about the documentaries, he also produced the documentary West of Memphis, which uh, you know, uh, got some good feedback. Um, and then I know mortal engines was another one that I, th I don't know if he was going to ever direct, but I know that he produced and ended up writing it with Fran Walsh and Philippa Boyens again. And I just remember it looked eh, okay. And then I just remember like, it just kind of turned into a big old flop when it came out. And so I was like, well, I guess I don't need to see that one at all. Well, we did. And that's another one we did see. And because my kids were big fans of the books, just didn't take the movie just didn't take it was it felt like an an in an unfaithful adaptation of the source material that nobody could quite nobody in my family at least could quite wrap their heads around but it's hugo weaving it's that's fun uh so yeah anyway your mileage may vary but jackson i think is a fascinating character and i i don't know i don't know if i've heard like what he's up to now i mean have you heard is there anything that he's actually uh working on at this particular point in time what is he do is he directing anything coming that's a that's actually a, a great question um that's a, yeah i'm not seeing i mean he's got a couple of upcoming production uh credits untitled third tintin film 
uh, uh, second and third Tintin sequels uh, yeah. as a producer. He's got, uh, yeah, it looks like he's slated to direct the uh, the sequel to Adventures of Tintin. Okay. So that's, uh, I think, one of those things that he and Spielberg had been kind of in partnership with as far as developing all of those and getting them made. But yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I guess I am curious, um, you know, where is he going to go? Because I feel like, I don't know, I just find him to be such a fascinating storyteller. I don't want to feel like the Lord of the Rings was kind of his peak, but at this point, it kind of feels like it because you, I mean, you could argue with the other ones. I mean, sure, certainly there was success with King Kong and the Hobbit trilogy, but I think mileage may vary with any of those films. I feel like, you know, that Lord of the Rings, that trilogy in the early aughts really kind of seems where uh, most of his, um, the height of his success happened. Well, yeah, I'll, I, and uh, the, you have to, give the guy some credit for sticking to it like fellowship of the ring comes out in 2001 he's working on it for how many years prior to that right and then apart from this stint in 2005 8 9 10 he's devoted to the hobbit tolkien stuff from 2000 like let's say 1998 99 through you know post 2015 that's a healthy part of uh of an adult career to devote to a single making properties on a single in a single universe. And, um, I, I mean, that's, it's hard not to think about that as a, as a, a positive, a a tick in the, in, in the plus for him as a trademark director, like the rest of the stuff is, it's fair to be periphery to, to all of that incredible work that he's done in, in Tolkien's middle earth. Yeah. And I, you know, I do wonder, I don't know how much he is actually still involved with Weta. I know he kind of, you know, started the whole thing and got it up and running, uh, particularly for all of these. But I I wonder how much he's still involved because obviously we didn't really talk about, but like with the Hobbit films, he also was big on the development of that uh, high frame rate. And certainly with Weta so heavily involved with James Cameron and all of the Avatar films, and on the high frame rate there, it does make me wonder if part of what he is busy with is dealing with Weta and kind of working, helping kind of develop the the world of effects. And I guess I, I shouldn't say he was one of the founders. Is Richard Taylor and Tanya Roger, the two founders of Weta. But I just feel like he is such an integral part of what they have been doing. I, I just wonder if he's involved much in any of that. Yeah, that's interesting. That's what I got, man. Well, anyway, uh, we will be right back. But first, our credits. The Next Reel is a production of True Story FM. Engineering by Andy Nelson. Music by Tillman Celescu, Oriel Novella, and Eli Catlin. Andy usually finds all the stats for the awards and numbers at d-numbers.com, boxofficemojo.com, imdb.com, and wikipedia.org. Find the show at truestory.fm, and if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, please consider doing that for our show. Andy, there are a couple of awards, and I would like you to list them all, including nominations. You may begin. Every single one. All right. There's only 123 wins with 127 other nominations, so it won't take too long.
Okay. Uh, yeah. Now, at the Oscars, the film nominated for 13 awards, one of the one of the highest uh, films nominated as far as the number of Oscars. It won only four. It won Best Cinematography for Andrew Lesney, Best Makeup, Best Original Score, Best Visual Effects. All of those make sense. It lost to Best Picture, A Beautiful Mind. I can't see that anymore. That's just, that's, I, I couldn't even see it then. Like, it's a beautiful mind. I was like, eh, this shouldn't have even been nominated. Uh, best supporting actor, Ian McKellen, but lost to Jim Broadbent in Iris. Um, you know, Jim Broadbent was really good in that film. That's a tough one. I feel like they were going to give one supporting actor um, or acting nomination to the film, and they gave it to Ian McKellen, which was great. I just am sad that he ended up losing it, but it's, you know, Jim Broadbent was fine in Iris. I, I, I'm not too upset about that loss. I don't actually, I don't remember Iris, but uh, I'm sure it was great. Yeah, it's a it's a, a story about Alzheimer's. Um, you know, it's his younger self is uh, falls in love with and marries uh, Kate Winslet, and then his older self um, is Jim Broadbent married to, uh, Judy Dench who has Alzheimer's and it's very sad because we saw them when they were young. Okay. It's kind of like a British, the notebook. Oh, all right. Yeah. I get it. Okay. Uh, best director, uh, Peter Jackson was nominated, but lost to Ron Howard for a beautiful mind. Likewise adapted screenplay. Akiva Goldsman won for a beautiful mind. Art direction, set decoration lost to Moulin Rouge. Costume design lost to Moulin Rouge. Film editing locked. Lost to Black Hawk Down. Best original song, May It Be, by Enya. Lost to Randy Newman, If I Didn't Have You, from Monsters, Inc. And best sound, but lost to Black Hawk Down. Any of those, do you feel like I could see that one? Okay. Uh, a Beautiful Mind. Should not have won a single thing. I don't. I should not have won a single thing. Now, should uh, Peter Jackson have won Best Director? Well, um, do you, are you asking because you want to know who else was nominated? Because I'll tell you. Oh, as long as you're offering, I'll take it. Ron Howard, A Beautiful Mind, one. David Lynch, nominated for Mulholland Drive. Peter Jackson, of course, for this. Ridley Scott, Black Hawk Down, Robert Altman, Gosford Park. Uh, I could see, mm, I, it just feels like this is a, this should have been a Peter Jackson win to me. I can't, I mean, all of those. I could go maybe with Ridley Scott, but he would never get it. Oh, I would go with David Lynch. Mulholland Drive would be uh, probably my pick I didn't of care the for five. It. You're crazy. You're, you're a crazy yeah, person. I uh, David I, Lynch, apparently, I am. I, I'm <laughs> you should be. You should be crazy. Um, <laughs> David Lynch, Mulholland Drive. I would absolutely have picked that. I mean, this is it was a tricky thing because what ended up happening with this film, and people will talk about this left and right as far as these awards, they knew the whole trilogy was getting made. And so a lot of these category, c categories, when people saw the first film, I think they said, oh, it's really good. You know, I'll probably save my vote for the third film. And again, Return of the King will win a lot of Oscars. And I think that people were just kind of building up their their votes for that. And so they're like, well, I don't want them to win three years in a row, even though, you know, The Godfather won several <laughs> Best Picture. But it is what it is. Uh, anyway, David Lynch would have been my pick. I'm curious your take, though. I'm curious your take on the the comparison uh, or particular the parallels between art direction, set direction and costume design. and losing to moulin rouge those are very uh those are the two that i'm most like that's a tough call that's a really tough call um moulin rouge was so fantastical i uh i kind of lean toward those uh you know 
it's I don't know. It's a it's a very tricky thing because they're also real world. I mean, granted, they're very fantastical Baz Luhrmann style real world. I guess I'm okay with them winning. And, you know, I, you know, I, I think it's probably fair to say that both of us probably would have dropped Ron Howard anyway from Best Director and put Baz Luhrmann in here. Yeah. I don't know. I kind of want to just say, Lord, you know, Fellowship should have gotten those. But, um, but I'm okay. Of all of them, I'm most okay with Moulin Rouge having taken those two. Here's the, the, the problem that I have is Jim Broadbent should have won every category for his portrayal in Moulin Rouge. Can, can, can. <laughs> like, he's so over the top. I can't believe they're even talking about this Iris nonsense. It's Broadbent in Moulin Rouge for everything, even costume <laughs> yeah. design. Just give it to Jim Broadbent. Yeah, yeah. All right. Uh, film editing, I, I can see going to Black Hawk Down, but I, I, and sound, I guess just because this Ridley Scott doing very intense things in a heavy war film. Original song, I don't know. I mean, Randy Newman has won far too many Oscars for some fairly mediocre songs over his years. Um, I mean, I, he certainly has good ones, don't get me wrong. But mm-hmm. And I don't know if May It Be Enya is the one I would have picked of the two, but I feel like, well, I, I certainly would have picked it over Randy Newman's song. I guess we'll say that. Yeah, yeah. So Agreed. Yeah. Otherwise, it was uh, the song Until by Sting from Kate and Leopold, There You'll Be by Diane Warren from Pearl Harbor, and Vanilla Sky by Paul McCartney from that movie. Um, well, v- Vanilla Sky and um, Until are the two songs that made it into our rotation around here. I don't know if I care about either of those songs, though, and that's, I guess, the thing. So Kate and Leopold was weirdly cute. That was That was not terrible. Yeah, no, the film itself, right. Anyway, uh, so outside of the Oscars, I mean, there are a ton I'm skipping, obviously, but the Saturn Awards uh, of fantasy, sci-fi, and horror, it had nine nominations, didn't win any. Um, No, it won three, sorry. Uh, Won Best Fantasy Film, Best Director, and Best Supporting Actor, Ian McKellen. It was nominated, uh, Orlando Bloom was nominated for the Cinescape Genre Face of the Future Award, but lost to James Marsters in Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Uh, I don't know who that is. Um, You can tell (laughs) me. It's Pike. I've never watched that show. You know this. Uh, Andy. I know. Best writing lost to AI artificial intelligence. Best music lost to John Williams for his score for AI artificial intelligence. Best special effects AI artificial intelligence. Best costume lost to Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. And best makeup lost to Hannibal. I don't know what the Saturn Awards were thinking. So many of these I'm like, well, really? Uh, Strange choices. Strange choices. Yeah, I is I can absolutely relate, particularly in the fact that they that this Orlando Bloom lost to Buffy. Well, that how is that even in the running face of the future? That particular word is is it's across mediums, so it's just who is the face of this future? And they do one for men, men, men and one for women, and uh, Bloom and Marsters were two of the people nominated. I guess the fact that neither of them currently have robust careers perhaps speaks to you know, that a little bit maybe i don't know what you're talking about marsters went on to dragon ball evolution which is a 2.5 on the imdb scale said, don't forget he does have a 7.0 ps i love you 2007 the um the other nominees luke goss from blade 2 michael rosenbaum from smallville and hayden christensen from star wars episode 2 attack of the clones James Marsters is the one who won. That's crazy. Yeah. Crazy. Smallville should have taken it. Last but not least, and this was, I just thought, funny. In 2004, 
the good old Guinness Book of World Records awarded this trilogy uh, for the largest battle sequences on film for the entire trilogy. With this to say, Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings trilogy featured battle scenes with over 200,000 fighting characters. To achieve this, Weta Digital wrote bespoke crowd simulation software called Massive, which combined digital animation with an artificial intelligence that governed how the characters interacted. And there it was, our future foretold, Massive is the AI that's going to take over humanity. Sorry about everything. <laughs> Love, sorry. Peter. That's right. All right. Uh, how to do at the box office. Well, Jackson's massive project started with this film and a budget of $93 million. That's $158.1 million in today's dollars. The movie opened December 19th, 2001, opposite Vanilla Sky, not another teen movie, and the limited release of The Royal Tenenbaums. Interestingly, it was Vanilla Sky that took the number one spot that weekend, with this landing in third place behind Ocean's Eleven in its second week. This, however, did take over the number one spot in its second week, which it did hold for three weeks after that. It stayed in the top 10 for eight weeks and it ended up having its theatrical run for 36 weeks. The movie went on to earn $316.1 million domestically and $582 million internationally for a total gross of $1.5 billion in today's dollars. That lands the film with an adjusted profit per finished minute of $7.6 million and proved that when a massive three-part story was done right, it could be a great success. Andy, your app from is that calculated on the theatrical release runtime? Theatrical release runtime. What is that? Have you did you do the calculation for? No, because it didn't. It what it wasn't something that really affected the budget. It did have. Uh, it played for a weekend in an extended edition, but the extended edition largely was never going to contribute to its uh, what to it was its making at the box office. Gross. Yeah. yeah. All right. Fascinating. Fascinating. Well, you know. I'm glad we're doing this series because I love this movie, even if we're not going into the, you know, what would ultimately take this show 20 hours to talk about if we were to go into all those details. Uh, This is still an epic episode of this podcast. This might be the longest that we've done. I feel like we've done some very long episodes. (laughs) Anyway, we'll be right back for our ratings. But first, here's the trailer for next week's movie, The Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers. The fate of the world will soon be decided. The dominion of evil grows even stronger. There is a union now between the two towers. Barador, fortress of the Dark Lord Sauron, and Orthanc, stronghold of the wizard Saruman. The peril of the Ringbearer deepens. An unseen danger draws closer, for there is another who hunts the ring. This story, my precious, and we want it.
back to you now, at the turn of the tide. Andy, you've heard of Letterboxd. I know you have because you're there all the time. It's the greatest social media network for movie lovers. It's just for movie lovers, really. Uh, you can go over there. You can add your uh, reviews of films that you love, or you can just keep a film diary. Let uh, Remind yourself over the years when you watched movies and what you thought of them. Give them a star rating and a heart. And uh, there is a paid tier. If you like the free uh, tier that you're on when you just sign up, you can upgrade with a few bucks. And uh, that'll get rid of the ads for you, and it will help support the fantastic Kiwi team that makes this network. And you can do that at thenextreel.com slash letterboxd. You can get 20% off, and it does count for renewals as well. Andy, what are you going to do for this movie? Three stars with quibbles? (laughs) For three stars with quibbles. No, I mean, it's just, uh, you know, from the moment that the film came out, I've just loved it. I, you know, it's an incredible world that Jackson created. So this is easily and always will be five stars and a heart. Me too. Five stars and a heart all the way. That's, uh, yeah. So don't forget to visit thenextreel.com slash letterbox to get your pro or patron membership. It works for renewals as well. So what did you think about The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring? We would love to hear your thoughts. Hop into the Show Talk channel in our Discord community, where we will be talking about the movie this week. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Letterbox, give it, Andy. As Letterbox always doeth. So I've got one that's a little serious. Ooh, it's okay. not. It's not a joke. A jape. A jibe. Uh, is yours a joke, a jape, or a jibe? Um, I suppose you'd call it that. Although it's uh, it's more just a it's an opinion. Why don't you go first? This is from Silent Dawn. It's five star, uh, or a ninety six out of a hundred is what's posted here. Ninety six out of a hundred. That is a finite scale. You think I have trouble with half stars? Ninety six out of a hundred. Magical, astounding filmmaking. This could have turned out terribly, oh so terribly, but it didn't. It sure didn't. It's a near-perfect cinematic experience and adaptation, delicately told right from the opening exposition dump that haunts the very marrow of my bones. A world with so much beauty soon becomes tarnished by darkness. It only becomes clear around the 45-minute mark why Jackson was chosen for this project. His craft is sweeping and relentlessly classical. Only a splatter and adventure geek could evoke such crumbling destruction and still sell every mythical, at times overwrought, line of dialogue. He believes in it. The world was real to Tolkien. It was real to Jackson. And it's real to the audience. I like that last bit a lot. The, 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 the part of the reason this works is just because of how much the people who made the thing believe in this world as a real entity. Yeah. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, that's a great one. And uh, in a strange pivot, I'm going to jump to mine, which is a half star by Christine One, who I'm not exactly sure why, but considering that... Uh, uh, Christine One is writing a review that ties into a different franchise that we've talked about earlier in the season. <laughs> and I just don't know why this was the direction that Christine One took, but I just find it funny that this is this is what Christine One wrote as a review. Am I going to know when you say it? Like, am I going to know? You're going to instantly know what it is. <laughs> okay. Christine One's half-star review 
Aka awful. <laughs> what? What? <laughs> of course, referencing the acapella <laughs> trilogy pitch for perfect that we talked about earlier in the season. Aka oh awful. God. That's crazy. <laughs> what? Where is the awful. connection between pitch perfect and the acapella? Uh, college students and this. I don't know, but Christine One felt that was the that was the review to leave. <laughs> Somehow, do you know what? I, I want to check Christine One's review of Pitch Perfect. I'll bet it's something like acapella is wonderful, my precious. <laughs> Christine One has uh, only reviewed the one film, from what I can tell. This is it. Yeah. <laughs> this is the one. This is the one. Yeah. That is fantastic. Yeah. Oh, thanks, Letterboxd. All right. You know what I got the other day, Pete? Stephen King's latest. Want to borrow it? Do you know who you're talking to? What do you mean? Andy, when's the last time I read a paper book? It's been like decades. I would much rather use Kindle, or better yet, Audible. What am I thinking? I don't read paper books anymore either. I am an audiobook guy all the way. For those of you looking to listen to the books behind the films we talk about here on The Next Reel, Get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at thenextreel.com slash audible. It's the way to go. Season 12 was all about catching up on big franchises, some of which were based on books that are on Audible. Series like Twilight with Twilight, Eclipse, New Moon, and Breaking Dawn, all on Audible. Our Train Spotting series has both Train Spotting and Porno, Welsh's follow-up book that largely inspired T2 Train Spotting. We've got the Three Lord of the Rings books. And our member bonus episodes, The Hustler and The Color of Money. So many great movies from so many great sources, and they're all on Audible. Producing this podcast is a lot of fun, but takes a lot of time. We've dropped the dynamically inserted ads because they're so annoying and have no connection to our content. Plus, they just jam those things in wherever they see fit. We listened to you when you said you didn't like them. So now we're directly appealing to you, our dear listener. Please consider an Audible subscription to help support The Next Reel and our family of podcasts. I have been using Audible along with my family for decades now. I love it, and I have read hundreds of books through it. I couldn't be more pleased with their service, and I know you'll love it too. Head to thenextreel.com slash audible and get your free trial. It really helps us out. And you have a world of over 200,000 audiobooks open to you. So much great material available. Dive in with a free 30-day trial at thenextreel.com slash audible. Start listening to amazing audiobooks of your favorite movie source material with your first free audiobook today. That's thenextreel.com slash audible. Audible.